0: The Ascension of King Jesus. I just wanted, as we start off in this Acts series, and I preached, you know, it's going to be mainly almost holy, me preaching just straight through the book. We're going to take breaks and do little smaller series to break it up, but we're just going to walk through Acts together, um, but, and we started that last week with Acts 1, 1 through 11, but I want to take a pause and just look at what, one, what there's one verse devoted to, Acts uh, 1, nine, his actual ascension to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, and just do a topical sermon, a one-off, just on that, and then to continue with the text next week. Because, and I might do that some, as the Spirit leads, but I really wanted to take an extra sermon and talk about the ascension, because when was the last time you heard a sermon on the ascension? Maybe maybe I preached it last year. Maybe, Maybe that's when you heard it. But typically, we hear tons about the incarnation, a lot about the cross, a lot about the resurrection, and some about the return. What we don't hear a lot about is what does the ascension mean, and so I will, and it and it shoots through the recognition that Christ is reigning. He's no longer here on the earth. He's reigning shoots through the Book of Acts. So before we went farther, I just wanted to focus for a few minutes on it together. Um, we talk about the millennial reign of Christ and the millennium, and really what that's talking about is the thousand-year reign of Christ, and there are different opinions on that, um, but is he reigning is really the question here, and the answer to that question, that simple question, but all-important question is yes. Um, you would think that all, all Christians believe this, but because of the different millennial views, and I'm not gonna sit here and say there are three historic millennial views for a reason. I'm not gonna sit here and say the other two are wrong, but because... Um, of certain millennial views, I think, and because of what we see around us in the world, even though the scriptures so clearly say, in the book of Acts, right after Christ uh, is resurrected and ascends to the Father, say clearly that he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and reigning. We don't believe it oftentimes. We don't, we don't live like it. Um, and so recently I heard a Christian who's been studying the Bible for decades say, if there's so much evil, we're actually talking about the ascension. Um, and she said, if there's so much evil and Satan is so active, how can Christ be reigning? And this is, a, this is a mature, in a lot of ways, believer. And so that's just a good example of how, even if we know it cognitively, we don't, sometimes we don't live like it or we might not even believe it. Um, so like I said, premillennialism millennialism it's a historic Christian position. Um, and while it does mean that its adherents believe that Christ will reign bodily on earth in the future... Okay, a lot of times what it translates to when we think about it is that he's not reigning now from heaven on earth through his church. He's not pulling all the levers. He doesn't have all authority. Um, Satan still has some authority. And so I just want to kind of see what does Acts have to say about that? What does the whole um, scripture have to say about that? Like I said, this understanding of Christ reigning colors the preaching and the acts of the apostles throughout this book of Acts and through the early church, and I want it to color the way that we live, every word of ours, um, the way that we think, and what we do. Um, okay, so let me. I'm going to ask you a series of questions throughout this sermon over the next few minutes. The first, the second question is: I've already asked you one. Where is Jesus? Where is, some of these are insultingly simple, but kind of that way for a reason. Um, It sounds like a simple question and it should be a simple answer, but some of us might have various ideas. Where is Jesus? And the answer is that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father on the throne in heaven. He is in that one place reigning there bodily. He's not here. He's not here with us bodily, but he is with us here how? By his spirit, by his spirit. How do we know? We know that Jesus is king and reigning, first of all, because the scripture tells us. If you fast forward in the book of Acts, just a few chapters, we see the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He's the first Christian who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, crucified, risen, ascended, who is killed by stoning for his, proclaiming his faith and standing on Christ. Um, And at the end of that, we see Peter say a lot of things that align him with the Lord Jesus. He dies in a lot of ways, just like Jesus uh, dies. He says, just like Jesus did, he says, into, into your hands I commit my spirit, just like Jesus does. And um, when he does that, it says that he, the heaven's open, he sees Jesus standing to receive him in heaven. Um, uh, what does that mean? What does that imply that Jesus was doing Before? He was sitting, and we see that all throughout the scriptures. Christ taking his throne and sitting. He was sitting, but to honor Stephen, he gets up off of the seat of power, off of the throne, and he stands to receive this man who has just given his life for him. Is that, yeah, amen. If we're not cheering about that, we ain't cheering about nothing. Amen. So he's seated. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, the hand of power, and he is seated. In other words, he's not wringing his hands. His work is finished. He has conquered death and hell and sin. He has taken care of all the big questions, and he is reigning, and he is working all things, including cancer, including your spouse leaving you, including four hours in the DMV, right? Everything, big and small. He is working all that because of where he came to and where he is now. He's working all that for good. And so Psalm 110 is the, as we'll we'll see this as I preach through Acts, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage, not just Psalm, in the New Testament. And it's quoted all the time in the book of Acts. And it says, of the Father, it's a fulfillment prophecy of what would happen to Messiah after he finished his work on earth. And it's, it's the Father speaking. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, David's talking, and he's saying, God the Father said to my Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, what does he say? Sit here while I make of your enemies, in other words, all who are opposed to you, Satan, hell, all who don't bow the knee, all who don't trust in you, all who shake their fist at you, all who don't understand and admit you're the king, sit here, your work is finished, at my right hand, the hand of power, share the throne with me, while I make of your enemies, what? A footstool for your feet. I, was, I, had my, I had my feet on an ottoman just yesterday. It's my favorite. If you've been to my house, it's my favorite chair. It's a leather chair just past our fireplace. And I sit there, Abdul knows, every, every morning and usually every night to read the word or read another book or have a kid in my lap. And I have a little ottoman. And aunt, my daughter, my youngest daughter, was like, what is this she, Like little table for your feet? And I got to say the word ottoman to her. Basically, God the Father is saying, sit here while I make of all who are opposed to you an Ottoman for your feet. Um, I thought of, immediately, you might not have, but I thought of Tombstone, the movie in 1993 Western. If you haven't seen it, uh, spend two good hours of your life and go watch it. Um, I thought of the scene toward the end, it's so satisfying, where Wyatt Earp has just had his whole life torn apart uh, by these riotous uh, rebel cowboys. And he tells... um, He puts his foot on a a guy that was gonna gonna try to shoot him in the back, basically, as he's on a train. He gets behind him and he's like, "Surprise! You're going down!" And he literally he gets Ike Ike Clanton on the ground and he puts his boot on his on his uh, neck, and he's just like, "You tell him I'm coming!" You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. I mean, it's just the most terrifying. And he and he turns his he turns his uh, boot and, and cuts Ike's <laughs> cuts Ike's uh, you know mouth with his spur. Uh, it's just this awesome scene. Um, Christ does wider one better, though. Christ does wider one better in Revelation one, in Revelation chapter one. His best friend on earth sees the risen, not the. Not the Christ he laid his head on his chest. Not the Christ that he spent three years with. Not that Christ. The same Christ, but the resurrected Christ. And when he sees him, rather than running to hug him, what does he do? John, his best friend, when he sees the resurrected Christ, he falls at his feet. He falls at his feet. Um, And John writes this. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me right hand of power, it should melt through John's shoulder, but it doesn't because Christ has made John acceptable. Christ has made John able to be with him. He's clothed him in his righteous robes. And so he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. That's a name for God. And the living one. In other words, you can't keep the living one dead, can you? Life itself. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. He is the key master. He is the only one that has defeated. He's walked through death and sin and hell and come out the other side. It's like burying lit dynamite in a foot of ground. You just, it's gonna, it's gonna be buried for a little bit, but after long, it's gonna blow everything to smithereens and it's coming up. That's what Jesus is saying and he holds the keys of death and hell. And he alone has the power to set people free from death and hell and sin. And he alone has the power to send people there. And being on his side, the side of the ascended, risen, and powerful Christ is the most important thing we can do in this life and in the next. And Hebrews 12 says the very similar thing to Psalm 110, one and two. Um, it, it, Justin just read it, but it talks wonderfully about how Jesus Christ despised the shame of the cross, not because he was embarrassed about it, but because he knew he was fixed on you, all of you that he would come for to save, all of you that he would endure all of that for. He was fixated on getting you, on winning you, and on doing it for you, and he did it with a smile on his face. That's what he despised the shame means. It was worth it to him. And because of that, what does it say? It says that he is seated at the right hand of God. And I'm not going to take the time now to read all of the passages that convey this, both prophetic in the Old Testament and then in the New, we're going to come across a lot of them in the early chapters of Acts especially. But Psalm 2 says the same thing in other language. It says that all, all the world basically is opposed to the nations, the kings, the rulers. They with their own agenda are opposed to God. And they're shaking their fist at God. And rather than being terrified, it says that God laughs at them. And his plan for world dominion is a son that's gonna be born from David that will sit on the throne and that will rule forever. And it closes with this advice. Kiss the son, make friends with him, make peace with him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who hide in him. Daniel 7, also read um, beautifully, during our worship before the sermon just now Daniel 7 this wonderful prophecy a few centuries before Christ saying that one is going to come this messiah who will sit with the ancient of days on his throne but he's going to be a son of man strange he's going to he's going to have he's going to be able to receive all of the acclaim He's gonna be able to sit in the seat of power with the Ancient of Days, the Holy One, the one creator God, the uncreated, and yet he's gonna be a son of man as well, and all nations are gonna bow down to him and worship him. In other words, he's the king. What did Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? We've looked at it before. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the king. And then Philippians 2, 5 through 11, same thing. Because of what Jesus came and did here, he he left all his privileges in heaven. And he came down and became, took on the form of a, of a slave or a servant. And he served us to the point of being nailed to a Roman cross by his choice. And Paul says, even he died, even the death on a Roman cross. The most shameful death you could possibly die, then or now. And because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave Christ the name that is above every name. That at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Um, Dawson, uh, Garrett Dawson from whom I'll be quoting a little bit he wrote a book on the ascension, they're hard to find there's not a lot of focus on the ascension he says this to sort of collect it all Jesus ascended, why? because he won he says Jesus ascended to quote him because he had triumphed in other words his work is finished, sit here, your work is done A plus you get to sit now and reign you have all power and your enemies are gonna simply be an ottoman or a footstool for your feet. Um, this is the theme of the preaching in Acts. Peter in Acts 2.36 says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Um, Acts one eleven. I mentioned it last time sort of at the end of my sermon last week and talked about how it's this, it's this verse that I think is packed with a lot of humor because the angels say to the disciples, The disciples are what, staring, Jesus enters into a cloud, and they're sitting there staring, and he's already told them, go wait in Jerusalem, but they're like this. I mean, I would have been too, right? Maybe crying, I don't know. Uh, But what do the angels say to the disciples? Why are you staring? He's going to come back just like he's just gone. In other words, any time, and I've preached about this before, but I didn't unpack it last week, but in short, anytime God is associated with the clouds or coming in the clouds or going into the clouds, it's saying he is the God, he is, it's a, it's a sign of power. He, he, when he rides on the clouds, he comes to judge and he comes to make things right. And those that are not with him are eviscerated. And those that are with him come to him and are made whole, okay? And it's saying he goes, he went up into the cloud. Is not a meteorological comment. It's saying he went up into power. He went up to be seated, as we're told in Hebrews, and Psalm 110, and in Philippians 2 and other places, in power with the Father. His work is finished, and He's reigning, and He's going to come back in the same way, not in weakness, not like He came the first time. He's going to come in power. So the question is what, um, what is, what sort of time is it right now? If we're in between the time of His going up in power and His coming down in power, and He's reigning now, what kind of time is this? The kind of time is that he's reigning now. This is the time. It's characterized by one thing, and that is that that Jesus Christ is risen and he kept rising from the grave all the way to the right hand of power, the nerve center of the cosmos. And he is reigning. And he is using every pain, every loss, every heartache, everything, big or small, because he has been there and entered into that all the way down farther than you or I will ever go. And because he is now at the highest place, he can and will and is using those things for good. As somebody prayed earlier in the back when we were praying for this gathering, that's exactly right because of where he's been and where he is now. Um, he is reigning. Regardless of your millennial position, he's reigning now. And that pervades the book of Acts. So also, we know, um, we know this not from scripture, but also we know it because the Holy Spirit assures us of this. Um, Another question for you. I told you I'd ask you some questions. What did the Holy Spirit falling on them in the last passage Nathaniel read, um, Acts 2, 1 through 4, which we'll take more of a look at next week? What did the Holy Spirit falling on the, the 120 in the upper room, what did that tell them? I've kind of given you a leading question, right, because I've already said that the Scriptures tell us that Christ is reigning, but what else does the Holy Spirit falling. So the Holy Spirit falling told them in three words, what, he made it, he made it. Okay, Jesus, that's one of my favorite things about having the Holy Spirit. It reminds me all the time, he made it. I'm in the middle of mire and mud and I'm groaning right now and I'm grieving and it's dark and I'm full of myself and I'm full of brokenness and I'm in a broken world, but I know I have the Holy Spirit. And what does that tell me? It tells me that he made it and it tells me that he's reigning, and it tells me where Jesus is, and it tells me that he's coming again, and it tells me that he's in me by his spirit. John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, this is Jesus, speaking pre-crucifixion to his disciples and to you, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Peter understands, confirms, and proclaims this in Acts 2, where he says even more clearly, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you see that? I want you to get that. The fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and that the church is the people of God who are filled with the Spirit of God, who are taken from death into life, made his children and empowered for witness. The fact that we have his Holy Spirit means a lot of things. One of them is, that he's seated at the throne. He made it, he made it, he's not suffering anymore. We remain here and continue to suffer, but with that hope and with that reality, right? And he knows exactly what we're going through because of where he's been. He's not, a, he's not a, an unconcerned or an unrelatable or a dispassionate God, not at all, quite the contrary. So the ascension means Jesus is king. I hope I've established that, I could talk for longer. Of course you know I could. You, know, you don't know many things, but you know I could always talk for longer. Um, I could talk for longer about that, but he's king. He's reigning. The ascension thus means Jesus is reigning from heaven on earth through his body, the church. But as soon as I say that, I think we have to pause just briefly and say, but wait, here's another question. Wasn't Jesus always king? Wasn't the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uncreated, God almighty, one with the father? Wasn't he always reigning? And the answer to the question, wasn't Jesus always reigning, is both yes and no. As God, as the Son of God, yes, he was always reigning, even before anything existed but God. But as a man representing humanity, no. Okay? Adam was king, made in God's image to rule over all God's creation, and we know how that ended up. Not well. He rebelled Relationship with God was severed, but God brought him back through covenant. But all under his charge was cracked. That's why we read on the front lines of the news every day bad stuff. That's also why there's so much darkness in here. It's because of that. Jesus came as the second Adam to reclaim that and to do what Adam couldn't do to reclaim, hey, the kingship, the kingship that Adam lost, the rule over all things. Adam lost it, Jesus regained it. I I wanna say it like this, my systematic theology professor and spiritual father, he said it like this many times. For the first time at the ascension of Christ, the dust of earth sat on the throne of heaven. You hear that? That's a bit of poetic license, but I think that it gets the point across nicely. A, A man had never before successfully ruled over all creation, and now one does. And guess what? He is a representative man, which means when Christ reigns, so do you. Not only, not only if you're feeling great today, I've had my second cup of coffee and nothing's going wrong. I mean, how how often does that happen? Not too not too often. Five minutes and then something goes on. No. The most important truth to hold on to, one of the most, when we're being ground when we're being nagged, inside or out, or both, which is m- mostly the case with me um, and I know with you too. In other words, the ascension means that not only that Jesus is king, but in him, you are too. You are seated with him. Dawson again says this, and I quote, there is a real human king who reigns over the world from heaven. And again, check the list, hone in with me. The Son of God, Dawson says, did not come down in order to stay, nor did he come to us in order to slum for 33 years before shedding our skin and returning to the splendor of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ descended in order to gather us up and bring us with him to his Father in heaven. Quoting Athanasius, an early church father, he says, The Word himself did not need to be exalted. Kind of like I said earlier, hasn't he always reigned? Yeah, he didn't need to be exalted. He always was, but he left that exaltation. Why? To get you, to represent you, and to take you somewhere. The word himself did not need to be exalted, for he is the highest. But for the sake of our exaltation, the word as a man was glorified in the ascension. As with his life, death, and resurrection, so with his ascension, he did it not for himself. Do you get that? He did it for you. You are seated with Christ in the heavens. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. Not Paul Ramsey. Paul's not here anymore most Sundays. So in fact, pray for them. If you think about it. He's, they're doing their first Sunday gathering in their home that will continue ad infinitum, hopefully, until they're a full-blown meeting somewhere else, big church body. But um, pray for them. But no, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the work of God, not your work. And raised us up with him. Catch that again? It's a theme in Paul. And seated us with him in the heavenly places. What? In Christ Jesus. He represents you. So the ascension means that a representative man is king of the cosmos. It means that because he reigns, we do too. The problem, I want to dip down into the problem and then preach the gospel to you and then take us home to some application. Not that I haven't been preaching the gospel, but I'm preach it some more. You can never preach it too much. Um, the problem, though, is that, like I said at the beginning, we don't live like this is true. Often. Always. So I'm here to remind us of this glorious truth again this morning, and then it will help you to make sense of the seemingly bizarre behavior. Of the apostles in the early church when they are being whipped and beaten and pounded and persecuted and jailed, they are singing. Why? Because they know this truth. They Paul Paul Paul's his real position isn't in jail. Your real position is not in the DMV. Or cancer, or your spouse leaving you, or I could go on, couldn't I? Your real position, Paul's real position, was that he was seated with Christ, okay? That's what gives them the strength to sing. Um, It means, this means so much. It touches everything we do. Let me just run a quick diagnostic. Gossip, let's go gossip. Let's go application, hardcore, brass tacks, can't get away from it. I wanna squirm away from these things, but I can't. Let's talk gossip. Gossip, if I gossip, and and I do, Lord, forgive me, you are the king. I'm, when I say you're the king, and when I I'm saying you're living like, when we gossip, we're living like we're the king, okay? When you choose not to, he's the king. You're living like he's the king who will hold you accountable for every word spoken or unspoken one day, right? Defend yourself when you really deserve to be defended. Don't, don't you, I often deserve to defend myself. I'm often right, that's the way I think, okay? Defend myself, I'm living like I'm the king. I'm living like I'm the king. I got to set the record straight. If I refrain, especially when I'm right, I'm living like he's the king, right? He's the king. He can and will defend me. He holds the record straight, um, and in the end, all truth rises. Okay, stretch the stretch the truth, bend it, break it to serve yourself. You're the king. Keep it even at cost to yourself. He's the king. Forgo a Sabbath, work seven days a week. You're the king. Take one day in seven to worship and rest because you know it depends on him, not you. And because you know and live like he's the king. So he's the king. Or we could flip that slack off, work lazily, uh, only work hard when people are watching you. You're the king, right? Uh, work hard, honestly, with excellence, even when no one's watching. He's the king. Is prayer a weak spot in your Christian walk? I'm speaking to me on all these guys. Something you know you should do but really don't? You're the king. That's what you're living like. Or do you spend substantial time and energy petitioning the Almighty? He's the king. Do you let other people's opinions or perceived opinions of of you define you? You're the king. Or is he the only one that matters? He, He is. The outcome of this upcoming presidential election, okay, will either elate or horrify you. It will move you to the core. The president is king. The U.S. is king, okay, in your worldview, in your mind, in your heart, Okay, other hand, you vote if you can because it's a privilege and important, but the result won't rock you to your foundation. Because why? Because he's the king. Because he's the king, thank God, right? (laughs) Give up on your marriage. Now, there are lots of extenuating circumstances, some of which, all of which Christ talks about, but give up on your marriage. It's really hard, you're the king. Hang in there and fight for it, he's the king. Despair when you lose a child, you're the king. Mourn when you lose a child, he's the king. Gather as much wealth for yourself in this life as you can, you're the king. Invest it in his kingdom by giving lots of it away while also smartly saving some, he's the king. Okay, last one, look at porn, you're the king. Fight for purity for yourself your spouse, present, or future, the woman that you 're gazing at and enslaving their fathers, husbands, mothers, brothers, and most of all the God who made you and is beside you grieving as you lust or or don 't he 's the king okay he 's the king um, Dawson again, he says this: Jesus reigns, and we understand that the king will come again to ask for an account from his servants so the king the fact that he 's the king now means that he 's also the judge. He is reigning, and he is the judge, and he will come to judge. It's, the fact that he's a king isn't just good news. It is for those of us who hide in him, um, but it also means a lot of convicting things for the, those of us that, that hide in him, doesn't it? Um, his ascension is also bad news for his enemies, as Psalm 2 makes very clear, for all opposed to him, um, and not caring about him or just sort of ignoring him or his claims is, or thinking that he's just a good guy but not who he claims to be which is God Almighty and the rightful King of all things and the Lord and Savior, worthy of our worship and and worthy of being number one in our thoughts and affections and in our lives, not believing, choosing to believe your word instead of his word when he is the word is to completely deny him because it's to completely deny who he says about himself, who he says that he is, okay? It's to reject him. And in the end, it will not end well for you. But as you live and breathe, it is not too late. Um, because, because the judge was judged for you, and for me, and for all those who hide in Him by faith. Um, and Christ's ascension also means, therefore, that we are brought home and restored. Okay, let me let me explain. Um, Dawson again, he writes this. He writes this. He says he talks about this lovely book, "The Return of the Prodigal Son" by Henri Nouwen. And um, he meditates, Mauen meditate meditates on this painting of the prodigal son coming home to the father after having wasted his life in extravagance like we've all, like many of us have done, and some of us have done it in different ways by trying to keep God's favor and obey the rules. Um, but he meditates on this painting and on this, on this parable, and he looks at the picture that Rembrandt beautifully paints of the son on his knees having come home after wasting his life and he has one shoe off of his foot. His feet are up like this, and one shoe is off. He's lost it somewhere like my kids do, but hundreds of miles away in a far country, ruining his life, spending all that the father gave him. And the other shoe is like barely hanging on with holes in it, and his head is shaven, and he is much, much, much worse for wear. his clothes are, but he's being enfolded in the arms of the father with his, with his face just smothered in the father's robes and the, and the father is gathering him in um, to himself. He says, the old man embraced him and his hands lit with Rembrandt's signature illumination gently draw the son toward him in full welcome. Dawson writes, now in wonders if this scene could be a scene, I want you to hear this, not only of our return to God, but also of Jesus' return to the father in our name. And on our behalf, having left the home of heaven for the far country of this lost world and silent planet, planet earth, his ascension is his homecoming, his return, and yours. Completely prodigal in his love for us, the son spent all he had. He faced complete humiliation and the dereliction of being cut off from even the sense of his father's presence on the cross. Then in the ascension, he returned home, Ragged from his sojourn with us, the father embraced him with joyful relief and acceptance, enfolding the son's humanity into the robes of his presence. Isn't that powerful? And again, I'm using some liberties, and Dawson says, hey, that isn't a one for one, because he, he returns victorious, not ragged. But he was completely stripped bare body and soul, not for himself, but for you. He sojourned and was made a prodigal for you. And his being brought home was being brought home representing you. His ascension means your homecoming. It means that all will be well and very well. Um, In other words, when he received the son back from his sojourn on earth, the father received us, all who looked to Christ as Lord and savior. When he seated him on the throne, he seated us I, 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 this is one of the things that Alicia caught me jotting down as I was, when Justin was singing, I had a couple thoughts and this is one of them. John 14, as it's being read, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, he tells them he's leaving and they get really sad, of course. And he says, don't worry, I go there to prepare a place for you. And Keith Green has this beautiful, he was a singer in the 70s during the Jesus movement and he says, he says this great line at the beginning of one of his songs. He's like, man, it took, the Lord God, the Son, through whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that has been made. Six days to breathe everything into existence. Six days. And man, he has been preparing a place for his own that he went to buy back at ultimate cost to himself. He has been preparing that place for you for over 2,000 years. And he says, man, this earth is a trash can compared to the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. I am telling you that right now. That is one of our great, great hopes. Um, and as I, as I close, there's so much here, but I'm not going to share it all. But I will say this one thing, at least before closing down. Um, his ascension makes sense of our suffering. It makes sense of our suffering. Um, So his his journey wasn't just his journey. His journey becomes the journey of all those who hide in him. Okay, we are identified with him in his going down to death. That's what baptism. One of the things that I, it it symbolizes, right? When we die, we when we look to him, we die with him on the cross. He, we we are united with him in his death to all the things that cause death in us. Right, and then going down to the lowest place with him by faith, we are brought up to resurrection life, to reign. And he didn't get to the ascension, but through great loss. The power of the resurrection came through the cross. It came through death. And I just want you to know that a lot of um, the power in you Um, The hope that you will gain in this life will come as he walks with you through your suffering and pain and loss and privation. Um, It will make us a hopeful people. It will make us a humble people. Um, A lot of his power is manifest while he reigns now and while we reign with him through us in what I call the economy of the cross. As we are crushed, as we are pressed as we are made weak, he, his strength shines. And there is something that is being prepared in us that Paul calls another place, in another place an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory. Um, so the, the ascension means, as we'll see in the book of Acts, a lot of things, that, but two things that it definitely means is that exactly what it meant, the fact that the king is reigning when he was on the earth bodily. We see that continued in the book of Acts that, hey, good news, the king is here. Sickness and healing. Uh, sickness goes bye-bye in a lot of places. Wherever the king is reigning, there is physical healing. The, the lame are made well. The poor are brought in and welcomed and made, and made rich. Um, there, is, there is a physical manifestation, both in his ministry and in the book of Acts, to the reign of the king. Um, and that is very true. But also, um, on the other side... Again, we have to remember the economy of the cross. Um, we are given power to witness, and a lot of that power and a lot of that life comes as we're sitting in a prison, as it were. Look at the apostles. As they're being pr- crushed and persecuted and whipped and, and um, rejected, the power of the resurrection and his ascension reigning power that's giving them hope and humbling them is being manifested through them. So, um... We're not gonna get on the Jesus heals everyone or sickness is never God's will approach, but we're also not gonna get on the he never heals today, okay? A lot of times he uses our sickness and our suffering, but we also pray, Lord, you're the king. Would you heal this? Would you touch me? We're both and. The devil hates balance. He hates balance. He wants one or the other, but the ascension means we are a people of both. We are an ax people. We are a Jesus people. We are a spirit-filled people. Um, I'm going to skip that and I'm going to close this down for the sake of time let me just read this um, and then I'll tell you one short story and then we'll be done Dawson again he says this well let let me read this from a second third century letter and then Dawson he says this is a second third century author unknown letter They dwell, speaking of Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. That was very strange in the second and third century. They marry as, uh, excuse me. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in very dishonor they are glorified. They're evil spoken of, and yet are also justified. They're reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor." Um, as Dawson says, commenting on Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, our lives are located in a new place, right? And so we're theirs. And he says this too, when the church is truly living out the ascended Christ, her members know that they are not really home here. We're fish out of water, while our neighbors think the real meaning of life is actually accumulating the most wealth. We do not repudiate material things, we simply hold them lightly. These are means, not ends, gifts, not possessions, we weep when we lose property and houses, but we never say, I've lost everything, for everything to us is Christ, and he cannot be lost. Voltaire, who hated God, was an enlightenment figure in Europe, and he wrote a book called Candide, which, if you haven't read it, I, no, no, it's a good book, I don't know that I recommend it, but he wrote a book called Candide, where Candide's the main character, and he everything he's, he's the protagonist, for sure. And everything Candide coming from candid, uh, honest, open, He is a good dude, Uh, but he has this advisor, Dr. Pangloss, and Dr. Pangloss, pan meaning everything, and gloss, he glosses over everything. His phrase that he repeats, his refrain throughout the book is, um, um, it's the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire is making fun of that idea and saying, that's what Christians believe, Christians who believe in a sovereign God. We could say Christians who believe in a God who is reigning, okay, Uh, in Jesus who is ascended on high? Am I saying that it's the best of all possible worlds? And I hope you know that because of the fact that that Christ who was reigning also came down to the lowest place for us, I am certainly not saying that, but I am saying that he's with us. I am saying that he's making all things new. And I am certainly not saying that it's the best of all possible worlds, but his ascension means, friends, and here I end, his ascension means that it will be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful truth of the fact that you are reigning on your throne and we with you. For the first time ever, 2,000 years ago, when you ascended, the dust of the earth was seated at the nerve center of the cosmos on the throne of God. We are with you. No matter where we are here, no matter what we are going through, and you know what we're going through because you've been there and worse. So we worship you as the God who came low and is now seated high and he was coming again, he was reigning, I pray that our existence would make your reign manifest, especially through our suffering and our pain, that we would be a hopeful people and we would be a humble people. We would be a humble people knowing that you've given us everything. We have robbed and plundered your house and been put in the lineup and you pointed to us and said, that's the one. But no, I'm going to take the hit for him, and I'm going to give him or her all my inheritance, everything in my house, and I'm bringing you into the family, making you a son or a daughter. How could we brag about that? Rather, that it would humble us and that we would brag about you. Look at this God. Look at this man who has done this for us. He will do it for you. Come to him. Um, Give us power for witness. Give us hope. Make us humble. Assure us of your ascension. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.